0: Over there, over there Send the word, send the word Over there That the
1: Yanks are coming The Yanks are coming This the week coming on the piety Schoolman podcast everywhere. we cross the English Channel to visit some of the most famous battlefields of the two world wars. Send the word,
0: send the word To beware We'll be over We're coming over
1: And we won't come back it's over, over there over Welcome there. to the to Schoolman Podcast. I'm your host, over Chris Garrett, joined again by Sam Mulberry. We're word, both professors at Bethel word, University. If you're new to the podcast, uh, this year we're talking about uh, actually a couple of trips that we're taking in 2019. So every other January, Bethel has what's called a J term or an interim. We take three weeks, take a couple dozen students from all different kinds of majors, and basically do the history of World War One in some of the key places where it was fought, where it was experienced. So we've done this since 2013. We start in London. We'll get to Paris and Munich. But in some ways, the heart of the tour is a four-day battlefield tour of places in Belgium and northern France. And then we are developing this into an 11-day trip for anyone but, I guess, adults. uh, That's taking place June 6th through 16th of next year. That we'll have kind of shorter stays in the cities, but we'll still have this four-day battlefield tour. And so that's our subject for today. We talked about London last time. We'll talk about Paris next week. But today's kind of an interesting travelogue where we're talking about some parts of Europe you might not otherwise go to unless you're interested, especially in World War One, but World War Two. And so we'll get to places like Flanders and the Somme and, and maybe a little bit of Normandy. But, Sam, let me start by asking, before you were on this trip... Mm-hmm. What did you know about World War One or where had you encountered it before?
0: Well, Bethel has this <clears> long tradition of having a World War One course that was taught by Neil and Virginia Lettinga, which was a course I didn't take when I was here at Bethel. Your uh, wife did. My wife did, and my wife TA'd for it, and it was it was a famous course in the department. So I was very aware of it even though I hadn't taken it. And I had worked a lot with the Lettinga, so I knew that the I knew the significance of the war in terms of its impact on on the twentieth century and just on like as a of Important hinge moment in history to say like this is this was when a lot of things changed this yes. is I also know thought of it you know as some people's definition of the beginning of the twentieth century yep. it starts with the, with uh, World War one so there was that, and I had encountered it really um oddly in two classes, neither of which were history courses, so I took it an art history course on architecture in the twentieth century, and World War I has sort of major impacts on that. um you get a lot of uh attempts. By 20th century architects, post World War One, uh, kind of utopian architects thinking about like how do we create buildings to make a better society, to make a society where this won't happen again. Uh-huh. Um, so you you get uh, so so that that was a, it was a weird introduction to thinking about the significance of the war, but it, but it actually was, was really interesting. You know, my favorite, and I'm not going to remember the names of the architects, but there was. There's a lot more – and this is true for a lot of folks. There's a lot more glass used, yep. in part because of industry, but also in part because glass speaks to transparency. It speaks to – I mean, literally, the people who live in glass houses won't throw stones. So, like, a utopian community is made of glass okay. because um, you're sort of aware that of the meanings of the things you do, and it's hard to hide. Well, it's interesting. I
1: mean, I assume Bauhaus is part of that. Yes, absolutely. You know I mean? yep. So um, – I'll talk about my first kind of encounter, but on the trip that I'll talk about, I I went to Bonn back when that was still partially the capital of Germany and I was in foreign ministry archives. And at that point, the Bundestag still met there, and that was exactly the design feature. I mean, it was glass everywhere. It's not like this big old 19th century cath- kind of secular cathedral, right, this monument right. to power. It was very much about transparency. Um, and then you also took a fiction class, right, a yeah, literature class.
0: My, one of my favorite courses I took at Bethel was uh, 20th century literature, and I love modernist literature. So so much of that uh, surrounds and then grows out of the First World War. So you, you get your... Um, uh, T.S. Eliot writing The Wasteland in 1922 which you know thinking about the wasteland uh, is one of the things we read on the trip um, thinking about or part of it thinking about the wasteland of Europe post World War One, and um, both in terms of a physical wasteland I mean, we and that's one of the things you see on the western front yeah. is the destruction of the countryside but also the sort of moral spiritual wasteland that, that is sort of left in the wake of war and, and the loss of life you know the loss of the, the youth of these countries and things like that um, and then, yeah, it, just the impact that it has on art in the 20th century, uh, whether it's you're looking at cubism or uh, movements into the psycho- into psychology, mm-hmm. things like that um, are, you know, it's a little later you're going to get abstract expressionism and things like that. But the roots of that are... As much as there, you can locate them in World War Two. They're in World War One. Oh, they're yeah. coming out of that pretty deeply.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. So we'll we'll get there. We'll maybe in Munich, we'll talk about this some more. I mean, we'll talk about German film of the 20s. Even um, in Paris, our next episode, I'm sure you'll talk about some of that modernist literature because yes. yes. Sam leads a uh, kind of uh, Lost Generation walking tour. That's a highlight of the trip. We should mention that class was taught by a retired colleague of ours named Dan Taylor. Yes. And I just want to uh, give. Dan, some love here because we're doing this June trip partly in imitation of trips he's done in the past. He has uh, his own travel agency called Thin Places Tours, and I'll put a link to that on the show page in case because Dan goes all sorts of places, including England and Scotland. I think he's scouting a trip to Crete and the Greek Isles. Uh, Dan's a fantastic travel guide, and an incredibly knowledgeable, interesting person. So you should look him up. My first encounters with World War One—I'll I'll talk about two very disparate. Um, things. I mean, the one that sounds mildly legit is I took a World War One seminar in grad school in like my second year at Yale. I ended up writing a paper about early science fiction. It was really cool and I didn't really do anything with it. But I went, when I was in Europe, I think in like the summer of 1998, it was mostly for scouting dissertation research in France and, and Germany. But I decided, you know, I'll take the train to Verdun at a year rail pass and I took some slow trains and went to Verdun, which is in many ways the worst battle of world war one it's it's fought for about 10 months in 1916 it wipes out a dozen villages it has a massive military cemetery and uh, an ossuary where all the remains are left Um, unfortunately none of that is open until february so we can never go there on our january trip and it's a little bit off the beaten path so we won't do it in june but that was the first place where i started to think about things like how do you commemorate a war and how can commemoration serve nationalistic purposes or um, conciliatory purposes? There's a joint effort by German and French veterans to build this ossuary in the 1920s. Um, but actually, my interest in the war goes a lot older, and, it, and my kids have reminded me of this. In um, the early 1980s, Charles Schultz made a Memorial Day Peanuts cartoon
0: oh, yeah. called
1: What Have We Learned Charlie Brown? And apparently, they had like the, the Peanuts gang had done a foreign exchange trip, and so they kind of use that as a springboard for on their way home, they ended up driving to like the D-Day beaches of Normandy where we'll go in January and June. But at one point they get lost and they find their way in Belgium and ask them where they are and, and the and the kid says Ypres, which is French for Ypres or Wiper. Hyper. And there's a sign that had, and I looked at it again because the kids were watching this and it's all these like Langemark and Paparinga and it's all these Belgian places we go on the World War One trip. And like, even as a, I would have been like eight at that point, there was something about this kind of haunted Thing of hearing John McRae's poetry about in Flanders Fields, and I watched it again with my kids who are eight, and um, it was like this is where this comes from. It's actually it's Charlie Brown and, and Snoopy. I do need way. to
0: point out that the Peanuts gang did two study abroad's too, because there is also Bon Voyage Charlie Brown, which is a different storyline where they go study abroad.
1: Well, now we've got season five of the Pied Pescoban podcast. <laughs> that's right,
0: work through the Schultz oeuvre. Uh,
1: okay, so we should we should get going with this. Um Sam, why is this so important? Like, why did, for example, we wanted to cut the trip down to eleven days for the summer, but we were pretty insistent we were going to keep exactly the same length four day battlefield tour, just maybe do a little bit more with, with World War Two. But why is it so important to go to battlefields in small towns like Yper and uh, Albert and Peron?
0: Well, at one level, this is where we. I mean, the Imperial War Museum is a great walk through the history of the of the war. So in some ways, that's where we learn the narrative of the war. But I feel like we really learn if you're really going to study the war. It's, it's it's at the front. And a, a big part of this is because of Carl. Carl.
1: It's, Let's talk about Carl, shall we? Because one thing we should point out, it's one thing to go to London.
0: And I think any reasonably
1: kind of well-prepared American can explore London all right and find great stuff. And, and likewise, Paris is a language barrier for some folks. But you can explore Paris and do well. Munich, likewise. You can't just... I don't think just show up in Flanders or Picardy in northern France and just kind of find your way. Like it really helps to have a local guide. And in 2012, I was introduced to a man named Carl Oak, uh, who is uh, retired from industry, bought a hotel, and became kind of by happenstance a World War One tour guide. But he also does like Waterloo and World War Two and other stuff,
0: and really is a genius of a tour guide. Like 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 what's this call him a world war one tour guide I undersells it's him. not enough yeah yeah
1: so we'll put that link on show pages yes. too because especially if like if you want to go in the summer and like do it well you do a bicycle tour with carl because that's his actual passion and that gets you even closer to the land which i assume is one thing we should talk about at some point
0: yeah too. yeah and and, and so and, and and when we get to the front uh one of my favorite things is is that uh that we stop teaching really mm-hmm. and it is it is carl and he he's incapable of not teaching you something in every every at every turn and it's always so fascinating and he weaves the narrative of the war in in both broad senses thinking about how industry helps shape this war and things like that all the way to the very micro sense of walking through a cemetery with him and he will point to a particular gravestone and he'll teach you here's how you read a Commonwealth tombstone. Mm-hmm. And here's the, here's the pieces of information that this tells you. And then, you know, he'll point to a couple and be able to and say, I'm going to tell you another story about this. So like it's, it's from the the macro to the micro. um, And, and, and he tells the story through the geography. It's one thing to say, you're walking in the footsteps. It's another thing for him to say, let's really look around you. What do you notice about the topography? What do you notice about the landscape? And how does that impact the war? And he has, the other great thing about Carl is, is he has deep opinions about the, the war yeah. too. You oh, know, yeah. so so it, it's uh, the characters of the war come alive.
1: Well, and it helps remind you that this war is not so distant, at least in European society and culture. Right. Right. Like I, I feel like for Americans, maybe like we're recording this two days before the centennial of the armistice in 1918, and like maybe we're paying a little bit of attention, but we can set it aside as soon as we want as Americans. If you're Belgian. Yeah, especially if you're Carl. But I think generally, like, the war still is there. It's present. You've got ceremonies, rituals, markers, physical and temporal to remind you of this.
0: And some intentional, some unintentional. Exactly. I mean, yeah.
1: Right. And and it continues to shape conflicts in Europe, attitudes in Europe. And, and so I'm really glad that
0: he's opinionated and, and clearly feels deeply about all this. Right. And on a small scale, one of my favorite things that he always does with our students is he'll stop and and it's never the same place. He'll stop just at a field and he'll just walk out into the field and pick up a couple rocks. Mm-hmm. And you kinda of wonder like well, what was he doing? And then all of a sudden he'll put the rock in your hand and you're like, Well, that's a that little stone's a little heavier than I thought. And what he'll what he's pointing out to you is he can just walk through a field and pull out World War One shrapnel. Just Here, everywhere the sound you know. of it. That's These right. These are two
1: pieces that I managed to sneak back from
0: Carl. They're just,
1: yeah, I mean, we, he just dug his hand into the mud in France, and all of a sudden there's shrapnel. Yeah, and so I mean,
0: the, it, in that tel- that even speaks to how present this is in the life. Yeah.
1: Okay, so now because this portion of the trip is basically in small towns in the countryside, like I think the biggest city we're in is probably 50,000 people. These are not metropolises. We're going to have to be a little bit more creative as we come to our four favorite M's. So last week we did this with London. We talked about a favorite memorial uh, for World War One or other wars, favorite museum, favorite masterpiece of art, theater, music, literature, what have you, and a favorite meal and talked about restaurants. So, Sam, I'm going to propose we set aside favorite museum. Okay. Now, if you want, it, we're not going to do this, but if you want, you can actually find museums in these places. In the uh, town center of Ypres, which is completely rebuilt, um, and that's actually a theme of a book that's come out recently, uh, the old cloth hall uh, is rebuilt. And in there is what's called in Flanders Fields Museum. Uh, in uh, the city of, I think it's Peronne in northern France, there's a kind of World War One museum called the Memorial uh, de la Grande Guerre. Um, we don't stop there because we're just going to battlefields. But you can find this. And, of course, in Normandy, there are all sorts of private and larger museums uh, about uh, D-Day and everything surrounding it. We're going to skip all that and instead do double memorials because that's such an important part of the landscape of what we're visiting. And so what we're going to do, Sam, is uh, we're each going to pick two, one in Belgium and one in France. I think we should say at the outset we're going to focus on World War One more here. Mm-hmm. Now, on the trips, we're actually talking about Normandy, maybe Dieppe. We actually haven't been there ourselves, right. so we're, like, we're going to learn this more. So we don't have any kind of personal knowledge or opinion to bring. But World War One, we've been through this a few times. I know we each have some favorites. So, Sam, you can start. Why don't we start in Belgium in the province of Flanders? What is your favorite memorial, broadly construed? I
0: will remember this because the first time we went, you kept telling me, "Just wait till we get to Langemark," <laughs> and uh, Langemark is the the German cemetery or a German cemetery mm-hmm. in. Um, in Belgium and it's it's a cemetery, uh, mostly Bavarian, yep. right? Yep. Um, which is interesting because we end up going to Munich, which yep. is the capital of Bavaria. And it's it's interesting because we go there after we've been to a couple Commonwealth cemeteries, Mm -hmm. a couple British cemeteries. And it's, you're immediately struck by how different it feels. Now it's interesting to think these are German soldiers buried in Belgium. The country they invaded in August 1914. Right. Which it's very interesting that this exists at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and in you the construction of cemeteries very interesting so you and i'm actually curious to see what it's like in the summer because we've only seen it in january which is actually very fitting probably um but you you sort of have to walk around this kind of hedge fence and then you walk across this thing and the, the um the idea is it's like walking across the river Styx, right into the the uh the the world of the dead and um What's interesting, what what initially strikes you about this, it feels like a very haunted place to Mm -hmm. me. What really strikes you is the the German cemeteries weren't allowed to have, they weren't allowed to have so many elements that rose above the ground. And so most of the tombstones are, they're flat, Mm -hmm. just flat on the ground, and there are multiple people buried sort of around these tombstones. Uh, And the Germans were far more culturally we're far more open to the idea of kind of mass graves Mm -hmm. as opposed to individual plots so like when you go to a commonwealth cemetery it's this huge field of individual plots and this uh, so the first thing you see when you walk in is this huge mass um, mass grave and then there are these uh, kind of cubes that have names all around them out of volcanic rock right right names of the missing or presumably in this mass grave Mm -hmm. Um, and it's 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 just deeply haunting mm-hmm. um and it's was hard for me to put other words to it than that but but like i am uh at the front i am i'm not a terribly emotional person but my emotions are kind of out of control at the front mm-hmm. um and i'm i just it's definitely a place where i just sort of need to step away and um and to take it in and it's it's a it's just a really it's a really powerful a powerful thing especially to think about the fact again that these folks are buried in a in a land they invaded they're not they're not taken home you mm-hmm. know and, and 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 Carl will talk a lot about the politics of of cemeteries too which is which is very very interesting but but yeah for me Langemark is uh, the next year I went when my wife was there I was saying to her wait till we get to Langemark it's it's really interesting so wait till
1: we get to Langemark that's right it's gonna be I, I I mean I would just
0: echo everything Sams so I think it's clearly the highlight of the
1: trip. And in some ways you have to go a couple times to really understand it, but it's, I'll I'll move on. I'll talk about, um, a commonwealth memorial that is in Ypres itself. So the city of Ypres, I mean, it used to actually be a significant commercial center in kind of late middle ages. It was part of the cloth trade, right? And uh, it falls in harder times, but it's still a decently important economic center in this part of Belgium. And it's utterly destroyed by the war so the british hold on to the town this is all part of keeping open access to the english channel and the ports there and, and so this is the outpost in the british line and the germans just you know bombard the town in it's nothingness uh and then Langemark is a smaller town of about three thousand on the outskirts of Ypres, where um closer to where the front line actually was and so you have to rebuild this later and you know to some extent what they try to do is the opposite move of the architectural move Sam described. They try to recreate things instead. But along the way, they decide to rebuild the gate on the road to Menon. To so this is one of the old medieval gates. And uh, they decide to let the British use this as a memorial to the missing. So we go to other cemeteries where you actually can see graves that will have someone's name, their birth date, their death date, and an epitaph that their family has chosen. And then every once in a while, you'll just see an unmarked grave. It'll just say, um, to an unknown soldier. And they put those names somewhere. Now, some of them are listed at a cemetery called Tyne Cot, But about 50,000 of those names are placed on this new Menin Gate that's built in the mid-1920s. And it's this massive arch and arches normally are triumphal right going back to the romans or think about napoleon's arch in paris but this is not triumphal at all i mean this is a mausoleum and it's literally just cover i mean you, you can walk around you climb up into it it's, and, and you go to the back of it and it, the names just keep on coming and it's british but it's also the rest of the then empire now commonwealth so it's canadians south africans etc so i mean it's, it's it's stunning by itself what really makes it so haunting again, is that starting? I think in 1929, the Belgians started doing a ritual every night. At, is it seven o'clock or eight o'clock? I believe it's seven. I think it's seven o'clock. Called last post. So in the British Army in World War One, um, as as uh, as the sun disappeared and night um, came over the front, buglers would play this tune called last post, and it was the last time you do a count of your unit, and that's when you would realize. Who's missing Who's dead Who's wounded And so what happens Is every night They close off the gate Traffic stops People kind of start To filter their way in And they do a little ceremony And, and Belgian firefighters Play I think like Three of them Last post And then there are Other elements to it Usually there's a wreath Of poppies laid We'll probably talk more About poppies in They story. often
0: focus on One soldier's story Yeah
1: they'll tell the, the story of a soldier Who sometimes is A soldier Carl has talked about At his graveside. Right <laughs> And um, and often there's a veterans group that comes, or at least as often in our experience, it's it's school kids. So uh, lots of school kids from the U.K., but even sometimes from as far afield as Australia or New Zealand, come and lay the wreath and they tell the story. And it's this little moment of, of worship, and it's been going on every single night since then. They're in the 30,000s. The only time it stopped was under the German occupation of World War Two. And... Uh, I remember Carl telling me about it, and I saw some YouTube video of it. And you, again, you don't realize how affected you're going to be until you get there. And I'm really interested to see what it's like in June because in January there's a decent number of people, but like it's January and it's not I'm a super ama- busy. Time. I'm
0: amazed the number of people there in January. Yeah, but I, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like in June. Right, like, right, right.
1: Because right. like it's, I mean, it's a good gathering, right? But um, and again, like as Americans, you kind of feel like onlookers. I mean, and you don't. I don't know that we feel it as deeply, and I'm trying to imagine what it'd be like to be. There are a lot of Scots who come, and a lot of Australians who come, and they're
0: Belgians too, right? Th- this might be a weird comment, but I'm also struck by, and this is because I'm so de- so deeply American that I'm I'm broken in certain ways. But like, there's nothing commercial about it. Mm-hmm. It's just this purely sacred thing that they do, and yeah. it's 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 not religious, but it's sacred, yeah. and like it, and, and and there's just very few things that we do that are purely civically sacred
1: yeah now right down the street are some like um somewhat tacky shops where sure. you can go and buy stuff sure, but like sure. in that moment like they seal it off so i'll never forget i think on our second trip there's like a bar or a pub just right kind of on the neighboring street and someone had kind of stumbled out already the worst for drink and was behaving inappropriately it was too loud I kind of stumbled into this whole thing and like like, imagine times where you feel like if you've been in church and someone's behaving inappropriate. That's how people responded to it. It mm-hmm. was like he was transgressing this holy moment. And, um, yeah, so if you can make this trip, like, have a nice supper and then head over to Menengate for last post because yeah. you'll you'll never forget it when
0: you hear those you hear those buglers and you think, I mean, all I can because we spent the day with Carl, all I can think about is what must it have felt like. To have been a soldier and hear that and because that also meant you lived another day. Yep. You know, like yep. that's a that's that's a pretty mean is a pretty meaningful sound, even, you know. So if we're thinking about engaging the senses, last post definitely does that. Absolutely. Okay, yes. let's cross the border to France. So on our trip, we actually go to several spots. Uh
1: mostly we're talking about the Battle of the Somme, which is fought the kind of second half of nineteen sixteen. Um, So I think Sam will say more about that. I'll talk about a smaller battle fought in a little town called Vimy on a ridge in 1917. So it was in the middle of a mass mutiny that paralyzed the French army, and the Germans tried to attack, but they attacked a Canadian position up this ridge, and the Canadians held their position. And it became a kind of legendary moment in the development of Canadian identity. I mean, like, they're still part of the empire, but they're a self-governing dominion. And kind of like with the Australians I talked about in London, like, this is a moment where you're starting to get a distinct identity that's attached to Britain, for the Canadians, attached to France, but distinctive. And so the Canadians decided to build a national memorial there and receive some land. And this is not a cemetery. Uh, there's some preserved trenches nearby with an interpretive center, but mostly it's a monument, and it's enormous. I should yeah. have looked up the dimensions of it. It takes, like, a decade to build Uh, It's kind of like two, almost like, they're not pillars, but um, one represents Canada, one represents France, and the space between them represents the Atlantic Ocean. So you can see it from a distance, and it's already impressive. Um, What amazes me, though, are the intimate details of the Vimy Memorial. And I loved it because we inherited this class from Canadian historian Neil Ledinga. And so, like, there's some moments of Canadian history we get. And this was one. It's where we always take our class picture when we do this trip. So the first two smaller statues you see are of parents. Um, And uh, one of them, the father, I mean, it's kind of like a representative. He's not quite nude, semi-nude. But you realize he's reading something. You get closer and he's reading the paper. And he has seen the, the weekly publication of the list of the dead. And I think the implication is he's noticed the name of a son or a brother or cousin or something that's your first hint that there's, I mean, it's massive and monumental, but it's also personal and intimate. Then you walk through the Atlantic Ocean kind of separation. You come to the other side and straight in front of you is a statue of a woman, kind of like a Greek goddess. And she's bereft. She's looking down and weeping and she's Mother Canada. And what you don't realize, like it's already a motive, right? But then you realize what she's looking down at because at the bottom of the base of this monument is a funeral beer. And names of the dead And she's weeping for her fallen son So it's Canada weeping for her mm-hmm. children Basically And then behind it, at the other side of the base of the, of the kind of twin pillar monument Are some other statues And one of them that really stands out Is a figure breaking a sword And it, it's... It's Isaiah, right? It's plow it's swords turning into plowshares. And so it's this weird memorial monument that is grand and patriotic. It marks Canadian national identity, but it's actually a pacifist memorial. I mean it's very much of the mid nineteen thirties, right? Like we can actually redeem this war, we're gonna learn our lesson and never do it again. Yeah, you know, and this is only three years before World War ii starts. So there's a kind of tragicness to it as as well. But I I've that was something I'd never seen before and um Probably because we tend to ignore Canadians. Like as an American, that's a that's. I, I, I try to substitute myself a little bit more in that spot and and find it deeply evocative.
0: Yeah, it, the Canadians come out as as big heroes in in Carl's yep. telling of the story. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd say Vimy is it's stunning. It's in and, 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 it's another one where pictures don't do it justice. Yeah. Um, the memorial that I picked and uh, is uh, is Teepval, um, and. T-Fall is designed by Edward Lutens, right? Mm-hmm. The same person who who um, designs the cenotaph, which you talked about in London, right? Yep. Right, and uh, it's I don't know how many is it fifty thousand names on about, the? yeah. I think it's yeah. So it, again, it's it's um, this kind of series of arches on arches, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then it has the again the names of the missing, and I'm uh, I'm. I'm always so moved by that because there's there's too many names to take in, so what you end up doing is just selectively looking at a name and thinking this is a life, yeah. this is a life, this is a life. Um, and so it's the memorial. It's a memorial to the missing of the psalm, right? Yeah. And, and what's interesting about it is, I mean, p- part of the topography that Carl talks about is that this is very flat, very, mm-hmm. very flat mm-hmm. land. But both with Vimy, which is on a ridge, and Teepfall is up mm-hmm. high – because when you get you walk up and you can walk under the arch or, or under the, the memorial through the memorial and then you go down and then you you're looking over a big cemetery yep. there as well, um, and yeah, uh, it's again it's a play on the on the like triumphant arch arch, um, and I, it's just it's 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 a brick and marble and right stunning uh, you know and and, and and again it the a lot of this is about scale for me, you know, um, where, why the, the size you need to, to write the names of, of all the people. And, um, and you know, and, and again, because we have distance from this, like I'm not going there looking for the name of someone, but it's not hard to imagine that it's not hard to imagine a pilgrimage, a family pilgrimage to look for a name. And that's all you have. I mean, there is no... There is no plot you can go to. There is no person you can talk to, but there is that name there. And what's really interesting, and this is true um, at Tyne Cod, it's true at, at Teepval, you know, they still occasionally will find and be able to identify bodies, so you will find places where a name clearly was. Mm-hmm. It's been, and it's been removed. And, and like, and like and to me, that gives me, it's this weird sort of moment of hope. I mean, I don't know like what, what comfort is there in f- in identifying a body, but there is this sense of like, they're at least no longer missing. Yep. You know that 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 it's, I again I don't know these people, but I feel I feel a degree of closure every time I see a name that has been removed.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting theme of World War One history. Is on the one hand the list of the dead keeps growing. So I, I mean Sam mentioned shrapnel, but there also is ordnance buried in mm-hmm. the ground, right? And, and people. <laughs> I mean, this happens every year There's a whole unit of the Belgian army Whose sole job is to deal with Buried World War ordnance, And some of the World War II stuff Is really explosive Um So in some way, the death list grows longer, but the unidentified list grows shorter because of advances in DNA technology. And so you'll see these filled in names. That means someone was found and they are now buried in a cemetery and you Mm -hmm. can go to a particular gravestone and there's an epitaph the family has chosen. Um, What's also happened is uh, occasionally they'll discover remains. And um, the last one I'd heard about is a new Commonwealth uh, cemetery was created, I think, in Poland that was then part of the German Empire and it was a POW camp they found wow. some remains of a few British prisoners of war and that's where they were buried and so there's yet another cemetery uh, check me on this but I thought Carl told us this on one of the trips yeah one thing that's interesting like the Germans at Langemark I assume are just given a certain size plot and that's why you've got 40,000 names in like you've you I mean, the space is limited and forces you into certain choices that become right. meaningful. At Tifa, like, these are the victors. And the French, as long as they're recognized, we're happy to give, you know, space to a huge arch. But it just amplifies the tension of, like, this is triumphant. We won. We want something that will stand for eternity. People will always recognize as being a victory symbol. But there's also a kind of ambiguity of... But this is for fifty thousand people who are obliterated by artillery that we don't even know who they are, right? Right, and it's the wastefulness and the carnage of the war. So, I, I know we're rattling on and on about commemoration, but you know, I, we'll talk about it for each of the cities. But especially when you're on the front, you have to learn how to read right. this stuff. And
0: and I I dare you to come on this trip and not be moved. Yeah, like like let me know if you can go through those four days and not be moved. And I will. I don't know if I'll be impressed or weep for you, but like. <laughs> Like, it's, yeah.
1: Okay, let's move on to our, our, I guess, third M or second today, masterpiece. And this is kind of interesting because we're not visiting art galleries, museums per se, but you do see um, artistic attempts to make meaning of the war everywhere. And so I think we're going to kind of double up on memorials, but we want to focus a little bit more narrowly. I'm going to cheat a little bit and talk about some art we will not see on the trip. But Sam mentioned that the German cemeteries in Belgium and France are only given, mostly it's got to be flat. I mean, that the Allies don't want this to become like shrines to German nationalism and militarism. And so for each of them, they're allowed one kind of three-dimensional figure that rises above the ground, um, and they vary. So at Mark, it's four very abstract figures who represent different branches of the German military.
0: Which moved in two of the, t- into it did. the it, years, it flipped which flipped to the other side of the, yeah. the masquerade. I mean, they didn't move on their own, to be clear. No, but these are
1: not static. <laughs> they change over time. Um, there's one we sometimes go to in Saint-Quentin, France, that has essentially Greek warriors. It's like Achilles is standing guard over it, and apparently Kaiser Wilhelm paid for it himself. Um, the one we never get to go to, and I wish we could, is about 20 kilometers north of Langemark at a place called Vladslo. So it's another of these German military cemeteries in Belgium. It's meaningful because there are two sculptures, and they're designed by a great artist named Kate Kolwitz, who's uh, very progressive. She's an observer at the revolution that takes Germany in 1918-19. Um, she's also a grieving mother. Her son dies and is buried in Vladslo, and she was given the commission... To design the sculptures and so there are actually some famous sketches she draws as she kind of working her way and she violently realizes I will sculpt the Eltern, I'll sculpt parents coming to like as Sam said, coming to this play and she imagines herself and her husband coming to the side of her son's grave and they're just these kind of abstract images of two parents who have been aged by the war one of them falls to their knees and it's just capturing that moment of grief as you come to see your son cut off in the prime of his life. I mean, it's. I've been to a couple of funerals where parents have had to bury kids. And it's easily the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. And it just makes me think of my own kids. And it makes me then think of places like Vlad's, though. Because this happens. Like, the Americans, I don't know if we'll visit American Cemetery, but the Americans had this fascinating program in the 1920s for gold star mothers. So American uh, families had the choice. My ancestors who died in the war were brought back to Wisconsin and buried in church cemeteries. But if you wanted, you could do like everyone else, leave the remains there, and they made American military cemeteries all over, especially France. Um, And they created houses. And for a while, the American government paid for a certain, essentially, pilgrimage for a mother, usually a mother, but it could be another relative, to come, spend some time, bring flowers, spend a few days even at the graveside of, of the fallen sons. So this is an interesting element of commemoration, especially the first 10 or 20 years. But even to this day, families continue coming to these places.
0: And so Kolvitz's sculptures remind me of that. When I think about the the idea of, of the parents, I mean, you talked about, you know, burying a child. And I remember um, talking with Kathy Nevins, one of our psychology professors here, um, when I was a student. And she talked about, you know, when your parents die, you lose your past. When your spouse dies, you lose your present. And when your child dies, you lose your future. And you think about these nations losing mm-hmm. their future, multiplied by the thousands. But you know, like, and that's a just a very, it's a very interesting thing of why this commemoration matters yep. so much as well. Yep. Um, my masterpiece is I have a couple honorable mentions because generally it's 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 war poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of a, a sucker for this. So there, there's uh, one of the places that we go in Ypres. Um, is as a, a, a cemetery called Essex Farm, and this is where John McCrae, the Canadian doctor, um, served, and he's uh, probably most famous for writing the poem in Flanders Fields. And so there's a little a little monument to that there, and and you get to go to the. The battlefield um, hospital, mm-hmm. and and Carl will talk about what a battlefield cemetery is versus a collection cemetery, um, and you know and and you know I, I it's it's interesting to stand in that in that cemetery on that battlefield and to think about you know McCrae's line from in Fla- lines from in Flanders Fields, "We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Fields." Mm-hmm. And you just think about like this, where you are is what he's talking about. When you turn to your right and you see the cemetery and you see part of the cemetery blown out. So it's not even, you know, it's, it, this is, these are people buried during war. And you think like, you know, that's part of it. And then, and then a second poem um, from Rupert Brooke, another famous uh, war poet, this comes from his poem, The Soldier. And I think about this when I think about um, all of these soldiers who are, who are left there. Uh, And he writes in the poem, this is in 1914. I think he dies in 1915. Mm-hmm. He writes, uh, "If I should die, think only this of me, that there is some corner of some foreign land that is forever England." Mm-hmm. So it's like, "This is this because I am here. This is home," um, and and that's really powerful. But my masterpiece, ah, okay, is, is the thing that moves me the most. Actually, I believe this is Rudyard Kipling. Yep, uh, writes this, and, and you hinted at it, but didn't quite say the words. No, I got perfectly. it perfectly. Nope. Um, so. The most powerful thing in all of these is when you go to these cemeteries and you're looking at 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 uh, tombstones and you start to the first time you see a uh, tombstone that just says a soldier of the great war known unto God. And you realize, oh, they don't know who this is. Like this is this is someone who came and died and fought, fought and died and is buried here and they don't know who it is. And then you look up and you realize you're standing in front of thousands of graves that say a soldier of the great war known unto God. And, um, I, I am almost in tears right now. (laughs) Like, like it's, it's the, it's the single most moving thing on the trip to me is just both the, the combination of the waste and, and the, and, and the loss of life and identity and history and, 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 and future, you know, like all of those things bound up is to me, that is, um, kipling is problematic in certain ways sure. but that is maybe the most perfect wording of anything i've encountered and, and yet another
1: grieving parent you mm-hmm. know at one point we actually sometimes carl takes us to um, the cemetery where jack kipling um, mm-hmm. is is buried so kipling had been this nationalist this kind of jingo advocate of the war but then um He's essentially asked officially to play a role in helping decide how are we going to remember this and comes up with this phrase. There's an echo of it at Mark. So Sam mentioned this, the camarading grab, this mass grave, and it's it's pretty spare. Like there's not a lot of meaning made except there's a little wreath with lines from I think it's Isaiah 43, mm-hmm. right? Um, I have called you by name and you are mine. And, and so I think a lot about the power of just seeing names somewhere, if that's all you have in the sense of you are unknown to us, because of what humans do to each other, but you are still known to God, right? Mm-hmm. And it evokes the idea of the image of God, and it evokes resurrection, and yeah, and and so like we'll talk about religion. Like you don't have to be a Christian to believe that there there are Jews and atheists and Sikhs and Muslims buried in these cemeteries too. Um, but it does speak to that sense of. Um, at least for me, that you were known and loved by God. Yeah, and that's the cornerstone of your identity. And I think about that when I go to these cemeteries.
0: All right, let's let's uplift this as we take it Should home, we? Chris. What is what's what's your favorite meal? Um boy. This is trickier because we don't this is choose really the hard. places we eat in and, some ways. And. Yeah,
1: these are not I mean, i just, I'm thinking of like my favorite meals of all time. None of these places like it's it's good, standard, fair mm-hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say what I'm really looking forward to something I've never had. But we will go to Normandy for a day and a half, and Normandy is is known for a lot of things, but in the culinary world, especially for a kind of hard cider called Calvados. And, and so I'm very excited today's Calvados. And so I this is kind of a, a it's prospective favorite
0: meal, but that's something I'm I'm eagerly anticipating. All right, and and for mine, uh, it's it's uh, when you're in Belgium, you need to eat frites. For everything. Right, apparently. and what's great? What's great about it is everything you have is going to come with frites, and and it's in, are in these the, French fries? Yes, in, in in the U.S. we would call them French fries, and when you get French fries, you're here, you're supposed to feel a little guilty. Yeah, but when you're there, it's like this is their national dish. Yeah. so like go hog wild, enjoy the frites, and and, 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 and drench them in what ketchup or something? No, 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 it is mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, and and I all I would say is just trust us. Oh, like, you don't know? Do it, do you, it.
1: Some of you Like my wife Is listening to that And like recoiling In horror She hates mayonnaise And some of you You've just been like Socialized into thinking You put this red tomato thing on You just haven't lived till you've Had frit with mayo yeah, um, yeah It's wonderful Apparently in Brussels Like this is kind of Street food um, that
0: sounds great, doesn't it? Let's go. <laughs> All
1: right. Okay. Well, we're halfway through our World Wars in Western Europe travelogue. Next week, we're going to spend a wonderful but short 36 hours in our uh, our favorite city in the world.
0: It's up there. It's it, right it, up It there. might be.
1: I think it might be. Uh, so if you're interested in going on this trip, look for to Schoolman Travel on Facebook. You can also read me write about the World Wars and lots of other topics at the to Schoolman blog. Plus every Tuesday at the Pantheos blog, The Anxious Bench. The Pietist Gilman podcast can be found at the Live from AC Second podcast network and at the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening.
0: Here because we're here. We're
1: here.